Our hope is for a cultural shift uh, in the role of the ESL teacher, um, not only, again, as I said previously, as a direct service provider, but also as an instructional leader um, in the building, um, so that attention to language is happening throughout the day, um, even when the English, the ESL teacher is not in the classroom. Um, so kind of turning a big ship and, and thinking about the, the ESL teacher um, as a, as a site-based expert um, in the building is, is what we're hoping for. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How might we train ELL specialists to help content teachers better serve their English language learners? What strategies have proven successful and sustainable for supporting students in the long term? What are some of the obstacles that make this work challenging, and how can anticipating them help maximize impact? We discuss these questions and more with Michelle Benegas and Amy Stolpestead, founders of English Learners in the Mainstream, or ELM Project. So with that, let's get started with the conversation. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. So you started ELM, um, again, English learners in the mainstream, to prepare teachers to meet the needs of culturally and linguistically diverse students. What was the impetus for you to get this project off the ground? Michelle, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about that? Sure, thank you. So Amy and I both have background in teaching English as a second language here in Minnesota, and um, the state of Minnesota has more refugees per capita than any other state, believe it or not. So there's really a huge need for um, for teachers who are well-versed in best practices for English learners. Um, so we dug into this work in our own K-12 careers and then crossed paths um, in graduate school um, and kind of dug into the same question. And that is, well, how can mainstream teachers do a better job of this? Um, fast forward years later in 2014, um, Minnesota passed the LEAPS Act, which is the most comprehensive piece of legislation in the nation around English learners and how um, they should be served from early childhood through K-12, adult, college, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And one of the stipulations is that pre-service teachers and in-service teachers um, need to have um, preparation in best practices for English learners. And so um, we, we were thrilled to have that legislation but it isn't necessarily walking the way that we wanted to. So um, in 2015, my colleague Ann Mabbitt and I um, heard about this opportunity for a grant through the U.S. Department of Education National Professional Development Program, um, and we applied for it, and we got it. So uh, we ended up getting a $1.4 million grant to, um, to improve the preparation of pre-service and in-service mainstream teachers to meet the needs of English learners. 
That's great. And obviously huge need, something that we hear about all the time and something that we focus on quite a bit is oftentimes I've said this before in the podcast, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir when I speak to ELL teachers and specialists and administrators, um, but getting the word out to those classroom teachers um, uh, and mainstream teachers is really important. Something that you mentioned, I think is really interesting as well, uh, Michelle, and that is that um, the, the legislation was there, but it seems like in application and practice, it just wasn't there. Was that one of the main reasons why you felt like you needed to start this? Absolutely. You know, we had um, we had a House chair and a Senate chair that were um, both very deeply committed to education and um, and a representative of, of Spanish-speaking communities, Puerto Rican and Colombian. So they passed this legislation through, and, and I always say that it, it looks beautiful in a frame on the wall, because then they left well, they didn't left, leave office, but they left the majority. So, so then we had people in office who were not, you know, necessarily enforcing it or, or trying to, to fine tune this legislation in ways that it needed to be fine tuned. Um, so, so we thought, well, what is a way that we can take this legislation and, and, and make it walk um, without heading back to the Capitol and changing the law? Great. When we talk about being on the ground and working and really making legislation actionable, one of the main components of that and one of the main components of the ELM project is training ELL teachers to become coaches. Could you explain a little bit about why um, you chose that model of having the ELL teachers kind of be the leaders to train um, other, uh, to become coaches and train teachers? I think we understand the, the, the main purpose of it, but what was the, what was the root of making that decision? So I think about it as, as twofold. Um, one is reprofessionalizing ESL teachers. And in Minnesota, we call them ESL teachers. Um, and I think, and this is an opinion that I know Amy and I share, um, with the, the co-teaching wave, um, which, which I think is a good thing, there's been an unfortunate side effect. And the unfortunate side effect is that when a, when a school district um, commits to co-teaching but does not commit to supporting co-teaching relationships, the ESL teacher often ends up as a glorified tutor. Um, and so we've seen our profession kind of take a turn. Um, and that is not in all co-teaching situations, but we've certainly seen it in environments where co-teaching is mandated but not supported. So Amy and I witnessed that phenomenon and we thought, you know, how can we hold up the expertise that ESL teachers already have? The other is that people like me, you know, professors in school of education, do a lot of professional development. Uh, so I go into school districts quite a bit, and I'm glad to do that, but I know that I can't offer the kind of sustaining change that a, a teacher could who was, who was physically there. So positioning ESL teachers as site-based experts and teacher trainers, I think, has the capacity to have more enduring um, transformation than hiring me and having me come out once to do a professional development session. Absolutely. So you're talking about sustained PD um, and and repro I love that term. Um, you said, I think, reprofessionalizing. Um, and we should say, uh, as as probably most of our audience know, uh, th th there's so many terms. So I will shift over to ESL now. Um, sure. to, when I was training for Elevation, I had to always think of okay, is it ESL, ENL, ELL? What, what, which one is it? <laughs> so we'll, I'll try to shift over to ESL. But if you hear me say ELL, everybody will know what I'm talking about. But that idea of um, of reprofessionalizing, I love that because you're right. We spoke in a podcast recently 
um, about the idea of co-teaching. And the same thing came up that, you know, you have what you called glorified um, tutors. These are people who are highly educated and should be really highly valued and utilized in the school. So I'm glad you brought up that point. Yeah, Steve, I would like to, I'm sorry to interrupt. I would like, love to add that it's also the ELM project model is also designed to be scalable. So it's, it, it harnesses that expertise that's already in the school through the ESL teacher. And then it, um, it, it can be expanded at little or no cost because the expertise already exists in the school and it doesn't require hiring outside consultants or, ed or um, educators to come in and do additional work. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Amy, that scalability piece is so important. And, and not just, I think, for, and I think you're both getting at this, but not just for the, the convenience of having the teachers actually be in the school and be able to provide it, but that scalability also lends itself um, to giving those teachers who are interested in this kind of work sort of pathways to do different things in their careers, which, I mean, as a teacher myself, a longtime high school teacher, um, I found, at least personally, and I'm speaking for myself, was lacking for me. I, there was not a pathway that I could do new things. So I think that that's great as well. You know, in light of what you just said, Steve, um, we're seeing that this is, it's, it, it is a change in the way that we're conceptualizing the work of an ESL teacher. And TESOL International has even taken this on. It sounds like one of the new standards that will be released at the end of the year will be around ESL teachers as teacher trainers. Um, so many of us who prepare pre-service teachers are already integrating that into our methods courses. So um, thinking about an ESL teacher, not only as a direct service provider, but also as a teacher trainer and including that in their preparation. I love it. And I think it makes total sense. Amy, let me shift back over to you. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the training for those coaches. So what does the training look like for ELM coaches? So in our project, you know, it all begins with recruiting schools to participate in the project. It's fully funded, as Michelle mentioned, through the U.S. Department of Education. So we really do have a lot of flexibility in that way. Um, so when, when we work with districts and charters, and we also work with private schools, we bring in the ESL teachers for a two-day, what we call, ELM Institute which is a train-the-trainer model of um, working with ESL teachers to get them the information they need to be able to go back into their schools and train their colleagues to uh, work with English learners in their mainstream classrooms. So the curriculum essentially of that two-day ELM Institute involves um, us talking a lot about coaching, instructional coaching. Uh, we we use a lot of the work of Jim Knight and Elena Aguilar um, to influence that work and talk about trust and relationships and compassion and um, all of the relationship elements that really need to be in place in order to have a positive peer coaching relationship and, um, and have some good outcomes. We also dig into a lot of the professional development activities that, that Michelle and our colleague Ann Mabbitt and I have done over the years in working with mainstream teachers. Um, that those activities you can find on our website. And the idea is that those ELM coaches can then go into their schools and use those prepared materials to train their mainstream colleagues. 
the idea there being that we want them to have readily available materials so they're not having to do a tremendous uh, amount of work on their own to provide professional development for their colleagues. Um, we dig into language instruction and um, go really deep into writing academic language objectives to go along with the content objectives and helping the um, coaches learn how to teach their mainstream colleagues how to do that throughout the school day. And um, then we end our two-day training with some time for the ELM coaches to create an action plan for their schools and what their coaching will entail in the coming year. We have them write those individual coaching plans or school-based coaching plans because we know that each school site is a unique um, environment and so it allows for them to have some flexibility in how they decide to implement the home coaching. Steve, I would also add, sorry about that. I, I was just going to add that that the, the content for the, the training certainly comes from our expertise, but we also hold an annual stakeholders meeting in which we invite um, representatives from our local immigrant communities, as well as um, representatives from, from our local school districts to kind of weigh in on um, what do they think um, teachers need to know in order to best serve English learners. And at our very first stakeholders meeting, which was uh, November 10th, 2016, so shortly after our last presidential election, um, we, we, we kind of, you know, gave the, the, the idea for the ELM project and what we were looking at. And what our stakeholders pointed out is that we were missing content on trauma um, and trauma-informed pedagogy for teachers in light of the sociopolitical context that the schooling was happening in. So, um, so we are, we have this kind of ongoing um, checking in with our community to make sure that our content is matching what the needs are. Great. Yeah. Thanks for adding that. So I take a, a, a few things out of that just in the, in the spirit of kind of summarizing. I mean, the, I think first of all, um, the idea of uh, this being about relationships and instructional coaching is key. Um, then, you, you know, you talked about the idea of um, effective PD and using some of the actual strategies in that institute that the teachers will actually, or the coaches will actually then use, which just helps them um, be able to see what it's like in action. Uh, the idea, obviously, um, of, of resources and information about language and la language acquisition. I love the idea of the action plan. And then, Michelle, you adding the idea about trauma and that um, really interesting time, I imagine, to have that <laughs> stakeholders meeting um, is key. And so what you're doing, I think, is bringing in that community and even family engagement piece into PD work, which I think is interesting because we're seeing a lot now, um, certainly with ESSA and with other um, just, just events and news, family and community engagement becoming so important, but you don't really hear it too frequently in this context. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just happy that that's a part of this. I mean, I think that's crucial. Um, and, and I think it sounds like you learned a lot from that first stakeholders meeting. I imagine it was something you were probably thinking about the idea of trauma, but to hear it from stakeholders and people who are um, affected must have been even more powerful. So I know that you have been funded to do this work for five more years, which is really exciting given everything that you've said and, and what you've accomplished and what you hope to accomplish. But that's my next question. Michelle, what is it that you hope to accomplish long term? 
Well, we have big aspirations. Um, our hope is for a cultural shift uh, in the role of the ESL teacher, um, not only, again, as I said previously, as a direct service provider, but also as an instructional leader um, in the building, um, so that attention to language is happening throughout the day, um, even when the English, the ESL teacher is not in the classroom. Um, so kind of turning a big ship and, and thinking about the, the ESL teacher um, as a, as a site-based expert um, in the building is, is what we're hoping for. And I would add that, you know, ultimately the goal that we have in mind is the students and, and, English learners increased academic achievement, their comfort in the schools, their ability to really thrive and, you know, meet their potential is throughout the school day um, with every teacher they encounter. And that is the ultimate goal. Our focus is clearly on the teachers and the instructional um, methods, but ultimately the student is at the heart of the work we're doing. Yeah, and so the vision is that this trickle, well, it doesn't even trickle down, that it's a part of everything that the student experiences throughout the school day. Mm -hmm. you know, we hear this expression pretty frequently, or at least I do, that that all teachers should be teachers of language. I know as a practitioner myself, and I'm, I'm not long out of the classroom, it's hard to believe it's actually been three years, but um, it, you know, not everybody shares that mentality. I was a high school teacher, and many content teachers certainly thought of themselves as content experts. I teach biology. I teach algebra. You know, I, I don't know how to, I'm not an expert in working with, with English language learners and particularly in schools where this is a new thing, where there's a, there's a demographic shift. Um, so that's why I think that, that, that vision and that mission and that idea of where you want to be and those aspirations you have um, are so important to get at those particular teachers who maybe. Um, aren't quite on the cutting edge of all of this at this point. Yeah, and that's why the 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 school-based ESL teacher or teachers are such a critical component to that that shift and the turning of the ship, as Michelle said. Sure. So let's get into a little bit of the data. Um, I know doing a little bit of research, I know right now you have seventy-nine newly trained ELM coaches and an additional thirty-eight. Uh, have been coaching for a year. So what have you learned from the experience so far? What, what if anything, does the data show you whatever you have up, up until this point? Um, Amy, could you take on that question? Absolutely. So, you know, we're a five-year project, so we are a work in progress, absolutely. Um, and we work with an external evaluator, um, CARI, which is an evaluation center out of the University of Minnesota. And they're data analysis for our second year of implementation, which is really in inclusive of the first year of coaching for the five-year grant, um, has, is in its pre preliminary phases right now. But we, we do know that um, through the grant, we've been able to uh, train 209 Hamlin University pre-service teachers um, and additional licensor, licensure teachers um, in working with English learners in the mainstream classroom. So that's a two-credit course that is funded by the grant. So that basically means that every mainstream teacher licensure candidate at Hamlin University has been trained in working with English learners in the mainstream classroom. Um, we also know that 104 in-service ESL teachers um, 
ultimately are doing active coaching um, in their schools. 192 mainstream teachers so far have been coached and observed using our ELM observation tool, um, which means that they're getting a large group, small group, and one-on-one -on -one coaching on working with English learners in their mainstream classrooms. And um, it's really exciting. We found out that um, through this preliminary analysis of our project that, um, you know, two and a half hours on average have been of professional development have been delivered to whole school staffs, um, which means that even beyond the individuals who are being coached by ELM coaches, others are being reached as well. Um, we know that five 0.7 hours of um, small group coaching has taken place either in PLC groups or just in um, organized small groups and um, an average of 7.3 hours of one-on-one -on -one coaching has taken place with the mainstream teachers that our ELM coaches are are working with, which is really exciting. Um, we know that we have a small increase based on the, the initial analysis in um, pre and post observation um, increases in, in serving English learners and we are obviously constantly tweaking our model to increase that um, that positive gain. That's great and from my perspective those numbers tell me that those uh, coaches who are being trained are having an effect particularly with that that data point that um, whole schools have two point two and a half hours of PD which which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but that can be very powerful if designed appropriately and through the systems that you have a place in place. I imagine they are. The other thing that I wanted to take out of that that I think is what you said that I, that for me is like hugely important is that you said that every pre-service teacher at Hamlin is it Hamlin or is it, am I pronouncing it right? That's right, Hamlin. Okay, great. So um, so at at Hamlin, every pre-service teacher has been trained to work with ESL students. That is not the case. Um, unfortunately, with every, you know, teacher prep university, I think, I think a lot of it is, you know, that that's where it starts. I'm a little biased here because I, I do some work with the Harvard Graduate School of Education, I co-teach there. And I, I think to myself, boy, there's so much that we need to do to prepare a pre-service teacher. So I was really happy to hear that as well. Well, and that is also um, part of the legislation that we have here in the state of Minnesota, that um, all teachers need to be prepared to work with English learners in their licensure program. So regardless of the area of licensure, you need to take some coursework in best practices for English learners. And it's also a requirement at the relicensure um, point. So if you're a licensed teacher, um, every five years you need to go through relicensure. Um, and one of those areas in which you need to prove competency is best practices for English learners. Um, so we're hoping that, that um, mainstream teachers in schools will be opting to engage with a site-based coach and PD in their school um, rather than, let's say, you know, watch a module and ask and answer some multiple choice questions. We want to offer a more dynamic option. I know as a teacher, that would certainly be my preference. So yeah. <laughs> I think you're on the right track. Um, so Amy, what, what obstacles have you encountered along the way and how have you gone about overcoming them? That's a really good question. Um, you know, we've learned that you don't know what you don't know until you get started. And some of the, the takeaways from the first full year of implementation are that we really, really have to get principal buy-in into the, into the ELM coaching model. 
And by buy-in, I mean they need to understand what ELM coaching entails and the purpose of it. They also really have to be leaders who are dedicated to distributive leadership models or collaborative leadership models where teachers are um, are really harnessed for their instructional expertise um, and, and given a, some authority to, um, to act in um, the schools as, as a leader, as a teacher leader. Um, we know that there are a lot of built-in structures that need to be um, created in order to support the coaching. Two of the major takeaways is dedicated time for coaching as well as uh, training on instructional coaching methods. And we also know that, um, that in order for that to happen, we can't just be working with the district level leadership, we have to be at the school level in order to make that happen. Um, and finally, we also know that, that the ELM coaches need to have a clear definition of their role and expectations possibly in the form of like a, a job description or some kind of agreed upon um, structure for the work that they're going to do that, that the principal is very much involved in. Um, peer relationships are a big thing too. So knowing that we have um, ELM coaches who are prepared to go in and, and really develop strong professional relationships with their mainstream teacher peers is an important indicator of success as well. Uh, I would follow up on Amy's comment about the relationships. We've had sustaining relationships with the ESL coordinators in the districts that we work with um, and had some hard conversations when things aren't going well. And it's been really um, powerful to see how they can make things happen. Um, so I would give an example of a large, um, very large district that we're working with. Um, in which the ELM project was just not launching. It, it was not working. The, the coaches were on board, but they just were not finding the time or the buy-in to do the work. And so the administration in that district um, said, well, why don't we rethink what an ESL teacher's job is? Why, why don't we say that their position from now on is 50% working with English learners and 50% um, you know, being an instructional leader in the building. Um, so that particular district identified, Amy, was it 20? 20 schools. Mm -hmm. yeah, identified 20 schools in which that would be their model. Another school district reached out to us and said, you know, I think we're going to be posting a position and I think we'd like some language about um, ESL teachers as site-based leaders for our job post. Um, so we gave them some language before they, they went out and interviewed candidates for a job in their district. Yeah, I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier with reprofessionalizing um, and something that I mentioned as well, which was like a pathway like that you can do, you can teach for a while and you're, you're, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't have that only choice of like becoming an administrator. Um, so I think that that scratches an itch, if you will, for a lot of different teachers who are looking to do different things. And, you know, you're, you mentioned the idea um, of leadership. I mean, the first thing uh, that you said, Amy, was, was principal buy-in. Uh, that's something that we here at Elevation, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're training on um, not only our products, but how people are working with their ELs, total mind shift, total, um, you know, change management piece. And that's, you know, we found the same thing without principal buy-in. Um, it's, it's difficult. But everything that you mentioned really trickles down to leadership, having the time and space and the title and the job description. I, I, this is 
this is an, another podcast episode. I'll, I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying that. But I wonder um, if the new ESSA regulations are going to, to, to provide any changes for principals who now are going to be a little bit more responsible school leaders for what's happening with their English language learners in their schools. Um, you know, that, that could be um, kind of a leverage point there. Well, I was just going to say that we've had a lot of principals um, asking about ESSA. We know that it's top of mind um, because of the, the way that it has transformed or is transforming responsibility for English language learners. And, um, and in fact, we have what we call our annual ELM Summit coming up next week, and we have an entire session where Minnesota Department of Education leaders are coming in to speak to the principals who will be with us about ESSA and the implication it has for their schools. So it is, I think it's a leverage point for making sure that we do get that buy-in that's so critical to turning that ship. Yeah, I think the, the, the building level accountability that ESSA is bringing in is resulting in um, some more action. Um, and, and that's a good thing. So, so when, when schools are struggling, one of the options that they can, you know, sign up for or reach out for is to, to redesign the role of the ESL teacher in their building. Um, so we're, we're excited about that. And we, we're moving our work outside of the metro area now and into greater Minnesota, um, where the, the student landscape looks quite different, but the need is still there. Great. Yeah. And I'm, I'm tempted to ask like to get more deeply into this, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to save it. I think it'll be interesting actually to reconnect with you all and others about, you know, six, nine months down the line, like has there been a result? Has ESSA provided uh, a key leverage point, but I'll, I will uh, reluctantly leave that now so that we don't, <laughs> we don't go down that, uh, what could definitely be a very long um, rabbit hole. So I want to dive into, we talked a little bit about, um, a sustained PD. And like in, in my experience working in schools and even here at Elevation, kind of on the other side, um, that sustained partnership with schools is, is crucial. It's key. Um, I, you talked a little bit about it earlier. It's important, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know kind of what your approach is so that that is something that's guaranteed. Michelle, would you like to tackle that question? Sure, absolutely. So I think that, that something that a, a teacher can offer that um, a consultant can never offer is that they are, they're part of the culture of the building. So they know what's going on, they know what the shifts are, um, and they have the solid relationships with the people there in the building. That's not to say that they don't need professional development themselves. Um, we find that a lot of our teachers are not prepared to be um, teacher trainers, they're not prepared to be coaches. Amy and I were chatting yesterday, and I think Amy mentioned that you know sometimes it's it's the best teacher in the building that is chosen to do um, you know um, teacher coaching. And you know if if you're the best second grade teacher, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best teacher coach. Um, so so I think some some solid training for teachers in in how to to coach their peers is is really really critical. I love what you said there about it. Just because you're the best second grade teacher doesn't mean you're going to be the best coach. I mean, I, 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 you know, you see that happen and I think it's in, in some ways it's short-sighted, but maybe it's not so much short-sighted as it is. People are busy. There's not a, something in place like, like we're talking about here. And so it's like, okay, 
you know, Miss Smith is a wonderful teacher. Let's just have her be this as well. Um, and then you get into that whole idea of teachers kind of taking on too much and getting out of their comfort zones, not necessarily in a good way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think choosing the right people to do this is crucial. That actually leads leads me to my next question. And Amy, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna send this one your way. How how would you recommend that schools begin the work of identifying and supporting those teacher leaders specifically to maximize impact on English language learners? Well, I think that Michelle um, really touched on an important piece, which is, yes, we want excellent teachers to be teacher leaders. Um, But I think that another part of it, and the literature actually supports this, that there really has to be a lot of consideration of dispositions and willingness to um, either background knowledge in or willingness to learn about adult teaching principles. So working with adults versus working with children, it's a very different mindset and it's also a different skill set. So teacher leaders are people who are both instructional experts, but also understand adult learning principles and instructional coaching techniques. So again, like Michelle said, teacher preparation programs are not training teachers to be teacher leaders. So those are pieces that need to be pulled in um, during professional development or special trainings organized by districts or university partnerships. Um, but in addition to that, as I mentioned earlier, the administrators and school leaders also need to believe in that distributive leadership principle of sharing responsibility for instructional improvement and need to be willing to work alongside teacher leaders and give them some autonomy to um, make decisions and have some um, effect that in, in instructional changes. Um, so I think there are a lot of elements. And again, it goes back to choosing teacher leaders who have multiple characteristics beyond being excellent classroom teachers. Yeah, and I think a lot of this goes back to that uh, classic structure and agency piece. Like, a school leader or a school in and of itself needs to provide enough structure so that so that things work in an appropriate way, but there needs to be uh, the agency out there for the teachers to be a part of that, uh, that model that you're talking about, that collaborative model sharing um, uh, the instruction. And, um, you know, I, I, in my experience, and I don't know if you have any response to this, but in my experience, Frequently, those teachers who want to work with adults and who might fit into the kinds of roles that you all are creating, um, they often self-select. Is that something that you're that you see, or or are they kind of being pushed and maybe recruited? Well, I think there's maybe a combination. It's yes and the the teachers who are um, coming forward to join the Elm coaching work are all volunteering for the most part to do it. They're are cases where we have ELM coaches who come to the ELM Institute and train with us and and they are there because they feel like they had to be there. And that that is not a recipe for success. Um, We want people who see potential and have a desire to affect change as a teacher leader um, while also remaining in the classroom working directly with students. Um, So I think that self-selection is a critical piece. Um, However, 
it is really important that school leaders cultivate the next generation of leaders and think about who has that potential and to set the stage for those teachers to um, harness new opportunities to be leaders in their school um, without necessarily having to leave the classroom because there are a lot of teachers who who like the idea of doing um, more leadership work but don't necessarily want to become principals or district leaders and so teacher leadership really answers that that um, set of teachers gives them an opportunity to do both I would also follow up by saying that um, in ESL teacher preparation, I've seen time and time again that our very recent graduates, you know, they've just been licensed in ESL, they get their new job and the principal says, and now I want you to give professional development to your colleagues. And, and they're kind of blindsided by that and they come back to me and say, shoot, do you have any materials for me to use? Um, so, so this is happening whether we like it or not, right? Um, and so there, there's something to say for making sure that all of our ESL teachers have the disposition to be teacher trainers, um, but knowing that some will take it on um, in, in, a, in a bigger way than others, and that would be, you know, officially being a building coach or something like that. Yeah, great point. I mean, it's it's just good to have all the tools, even if you don't necessarily need them all the time. And it sounds like that's something that you're providing. Um, so I'm going to come to what what traditionally tends to be the hardest question, um, even though it doesn't seem that way, uh, but it seems to have been for most of the episodes we've done. And that is, um, and Amy, I'll have you start. Um, is there a book or other resource that has had an important influence on you, either personally or professionally, in this work? Absolutely. I am a big fan of two experts on instructional coaching. The first is Jim Knight, and he has a book called High Impact Instruction. And that is a really fantastic way to learn about effective coaching. And Elena Aguilar also has another text called The Art of Coaching, which I highly recommend for anybody who is involved in instructional coaching or teacher leadership because it, it really has some critical components. Both of those researchers tend to the relationship side of coaching, which I think is critical and certainly uh, reinforced by the feedback we're getting from the ELM coaches. A third resource um, that I'll mention is Green Card Voices, and that is greencardvoices.com. It's a really exceptional resource for helping mainstream teachers and to understand the lived experience of immigrants and refugees in the United States. Great. Thanks, Amy. Michelle, you're up. What do you have for us? Sure. Well, uh, Jeff Weirs, of course, is, has been really um, seminal and, and very informative in, in helping us to think about how we conceptualize um, academic language objectives and, and how they should be written. And I know his, his work has had a trickle-down effect to WIDA, and we use WIDA's resources widely. Um, the other one that I would recommend is Wayne Wright's um, book, Foundations for English Language Learning. Um, that one is it's, it's a wonderful like encyclopedia of sorts to get at everything you need to know um, in order to, um, to work with English learners. So I would say a teacher that is, has been tasked with training and doesn't know where to start, um, that is the great how-to book to have on your shelf. 
Great. Thanks for that. Um, this is just a way for us to keep the learning going, uh, get it giving resources, and we'll include those in all the show notes. So last question, this is a key question, giving all the great work that you all are doing. How can people find uh, more about, uh, find out more about the work that you're doing with Elm? Michelle, can you let us know where we can find some information about that? Sure, absolutely. So if you want to learn more about the Elm Project, you could check out our website. Um, and Amy, do you know the tiny URL for our website? It is. It's tinyurl.com backslash Elm Project. Um, you could also look us up at Hamlin University, H-A-M-L-I-N-E, Hamlin University, and we're, we are the Elm Project. Perfect. And again, we will, even though that tiny URL uh, is nice and simple, uh, Elm Project, we will still post it in the notes in case anyone missed it. And with that, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you both. You're doing great work um, and we really appreciate your time. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.